Welcome to the Under the Lights podcast. The podcast for up and coming cinematographers, lighting camera operators, and photographers. Learn from the professionals and land the bigger projects. Please welcome your host, Cy Gamble. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Under the Lights podcast podcast for those just starting out in the film and video industry and for those who are looking to progress. I think I owe you a little bit of an apology in that this episode comes to you a couple hours later than usual and that's down to the kids being back at school and life just getting in the way of things a little bit. But we're here, it's still Monday and we've got another fantastic guest on the show this week. And who is that guest, I hear you ask? Well, this week we've got a good friend of mine on the show. His name's Matt Davies. He's a DOP working out in Australia. We got together a few weeks ago to chat about transitioning from the UK to Australia, what it's like to work out there, and also taking a sideways step within the industry to land the bigger projects. Before we get Matt on the show, I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank all of our listeners. Thank you so much for subscribing, for commenting, for passing on the word. If you want to show your appreciation at this stage, please just hit the subscribe button on your podcast provider, and that makes a huge difference to what we're able to do. I think it's now time I stopped talking and introduced our guest. Matt, it's a great pleasure to introduce you on the Under the Lights podcast. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Uh, yeah, so I am primarily now at the moment, uh, I'm actually a focus puller, um, but I have been a camera operator and also a cinematographer to an extent for many years. Um, I have operated and still do operate on a lot of documentary um, and a lot of corporate work and uh, commercials, but I also focus pull on some bigger dramas, bigger commercials, and also assist on bigger documentaries as well. So um, I'm based in Australia, and there's a, I suppose, Brisbane in this area, it's you kind of have to be a bit of a Swiss Army knife and, you know, play in a few different areas to, to have consistent work there. So looking back on your career so far, do you see yourself more as a focus puller or more as a DOP? Um, I think it was it was definitely a choice. I mean, I I used to be directly out of university. Um, I was an ENG camera operator, um, and then I operated in sports after that, and again corporate. But then I actually went over to short films and commercials and in England, and I was focus pulling them. Um, and when I came over here, I got advised from a few different people, you know, to. Uh, um, go straight in as a, a camera operator or a cinematographer and I suppose I tried it that way um, but I didn't really have the network um, and yeah, I guess yeah. to an extent as well the skill level uh, to be able to attain that work um, in that position when I first got here so I ended up reverting back to focus pulling in order to get those higher end jobs so I do love focus pulling but I think yeah I, I, I guess I've been doing it for a while um, number of years now and yeah do love it so i just want to go right back to the beginning take me to the beginning of your life uh, you were you grew up in greater manchester where where did this love of videography come from where where did this passion come from um well i used to i think it must have been about 2013 
used to go skateboarding with my mates quite a bit and we uh my mum and dad had a super vhs camcorder and um i remember borrowing it or sneakily taking it out of the house without the permission probably half the time <laughs> and um and yeah we used to take it skateboarding and film each other and make these little clips and we must have been doing that for i don't know up until i went to yeah it was up until we went to college um and we'd spent several years filming literally everything we did and we ended up editing it into a, <laughs> a feature-length film must have been about 90 minutes long <laughs> and um uh, yeah. and um yeah that was actually the reason i mean i, I originally when i enrolled in university i was supposed to be going in um to do product design and in the end i changed probably within a week or two um to the Batar course in Salford because I thought I'd give it a go. I never thought to do film or TV was a realistic career. So I was a bit hesitant about going into that as a career. Um, so I just changed last minute. So you went to Salford Uni and there's always this debate of whether you should do film school or not do film school, go out and get the experience. How invaluable were the networking opportunities and the training that you received while you were at uni? Um, it's funny because actually, yeah, my little brother, he's 10 years younger than me. And, um, he asked me the exact same question, um, before he went and it was a, it, it was tough to give advice on it because I think the course in itself, I mean, um, probably the biggest learning curve was the, the, just maturing over that age, 18 to 21. Um, yeah, and yeah. yeah, having, having the maturity to to go into a career and not just end up, uh, I suppose, ruining it before you even started because you're 18 and you're going out drinking. And, and obviously, like, some people are a lot more focused than that. But for me, I suppose it was it was those few years that it took me to mature to the point where I could really focus on a career and um, take yeah. it seriously enough not to, uh, <laughs> not to mess it up before I even got there. Um, but, no, I mean... Uh, I think the most valuable thing that came out of it was probably one of two things. Uh, Batar used, our Salford University used to have a direct connection to a TV channel that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it was a local news channel called Channel M. Um, and that was absolutely invaluable because it gave me a, literally a few months after finishing uni, I was went directly into a full-time job there as a camera operator. And that's really what gave me the foundation that I have and has been so valuable up until today. And I still, you know, from that job have lessons that I've learned that I still use day in, day out. And I suppose the other valuable thing that came out of uni was the network. And that was absolutely huge. I mean, the people I went to uni with uh, now, when you look at them today, they're working on, you know, documentaries, some of them at BBC, some of them working on Ridley Scott feature films. Like, yeah, to, because yeah, everyone that seems to come out of that uni has done very well. Yeah, I, I can echo that because I know a few people that have been to that uni and have all gone on to do really, really good things within the industry. Do you think that's something that's specific to that university? Were they really good at guiding you down these paths? There's a couple of good tutors. Maybe it wasn't so specific to the course, but I think there was a couple of good tutors there, which were Mary Rafe and Paul Barron. And they were the people that I suppose had been in the industry and really pushed you and, and tried to help you get into the industry. And yeah. I think it was more so the tutors than the course that made it, that, that allowed us to have the opportunities that we did have. 
And uh, what sort of things did you actually learn on the course? I mean, I've, I've noticed that you're down as a loader. Was that something that you learned at university while you were there? Or is that something that you've learned later in life? No, that was um, something that was learned later, probably a few years later, actually. Um, our course was mainly digital. So I think it was DVC pros that we were learning on. But funnily enough, oh, wow. I mean, we we learned on DVC pros and then we shot everything on even the final project on the dvc bros but uh the year after i left i remember i think they got the um they updated the cameras i can't remember what it was too i think it was p2 series cameras so still more broadcast orientated than film but um in terms of loading i think if you want to learn to load probably directly going into the industry is your best bet i'm not even sure if they would teach you that at film school i think you've already got to have that as a foundation yeah yeah is that something that um you mentioned your brother josh as well i mean is is that something that he's um he's he's been involved in or keen to get involved in so he's he's obviously been through the same course as well and probably had the benefit of the 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 more improved kit that they've uh, invested in recently but um as a whole i mean is, is he getting involved in sort of film aspects of stuff as well or is he staying mainly digital um well i've told I, I tried to give him my best advice from the learnings that i had in that my i suppose the last 10 years or so or 12 years however long i've been doing it um it, it's been very much uh like moving from one area of the industry to the other and kind of being skilled in all these different areas but a master of none and i think the people that i've seen with the most consistent work that took a different route to what I did is people that have got involved in high-end TV and film. So my advice to him was to head into that narrative production, drama production, because I think there's more, it's more sustainable. There's more of a future in it. It's, it's more skilled. It will always challenge you more. Um, there's more shame for, um, yeah. <laughs> and as a side note, does it annoy you how good he is at such a young age? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's probably better than me. <laughs> so let's talk post university. I know in the months, years after you graduated, you had some experience on This Is England and Ideal on BBC Three. Can you just take us along your path post university and the opportunities and training that you had then? Yeah, so uh, as I said, I went to Channel M after direct left uni, and that was ENG and news, and I stopped there for two years. Um, before the GFC hit and got made redundant. Um, well, the, the channel actually shut down in the end. Um, but from from there, I'd learned uh, kind of uh, going into any scenario and having to build sequences at the drop of a hat and how to shoot in sequence, how to, to light with the limited lighting that you had, uh, mostly natural, not very rarely artificial. Um, yeah, how to kind of like shoot to edit. Um, and then, yeah, once I got made redundant, it was kind of a nervous several months until I started uh, freelancing on things like Sky Sports and ESPN and got to go around Europe a few times on a few different tours, um, shooting superbikes and uh, rugby and football. And um, that was a lot of fun, but I kind of out of luck when I was at uni, I'd, I'd worked on a few shorts with some other people that had gone through one in particular, Adrian Peckett. He was, he was self-taught for the most part. So there's an argument that he was probably one of the most skilled people I knew and he was self-taught. But anyway, uh, 
I uh, I went from uh, shooting sports to then like doing a folk, doing a bit of focus pulling with Adrian Packard and um, a bunch of other DOPs, and I, that was when I started to get into um, more planned, more production based work, uh, and definitely found a love for it. I found that although it was a lot slower paced, there was a lot more to learn. There was a high skill level. It was um, there was a yeah, greater, greater appreciation, I think, in the end for, for what you're creating. Um, and that led then to uh, trying to get into assisting on uh, TV series like um, Ideal, and this is England, and, uh, yeah, spent did some dailies on um, this is England and did the season seven of Ideal, and that was a great learning curve of being on a bigger production that was completely... Uh, studio based how did you find obviously the the difference from coming from the eng to the studio because this is something that i'm coming across a lot at the moment is that i found the transition from sort of doing the the more eng work to that it was a bit of a strange sort of situation to be in in that everything's sort of siloed and everybody's got their like got their job and <laughs> coming from something where you're, you're expected to do everything <laughs> to to basically having your own job and you stick to it i mean how strange was that for you at the beginning and how, how quickly did you sort of adapt to that and, and working with these bigger teams? Um, well, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely intimidating at first, but if you, I suppose if you do the same thing day in, day out and you get too used to it, you're not really learning. So it's a good thing to step it's outside of your comfort zone, um, especially on those sets, like as soon as you walk in, because, you know, there's... It's huge. It's a huge warehouse for these huge sets and there's hundreds of people running around and, yeah, it's really intimidating. But, I mean, once you find your little crew and hopefully you you start off by having a nice little camera team where everyone's uh, pretty good to, to each other, um, then hopefully it's it's less intimidating to find your way. But, I mean, it, it was interesting because at, that was shot at the BBC Studios and at the time I also knew other ENG BBC guys and I was um, trainee in on ideal so which by all means could be one of the busiest uh, <laughs> busiest uh, <laughs> roles on the set um, but anyway um, I would step off set at the end of the day and I actually I stepped off set with the grip and the focus puller and uh, one of the camera guys BBC ENG camera guys walked past and he said oh Matt hey how are you going and and he said oh what what are you doing here and I said oh I'm a camera assistant on this TV show and he goes oh what do you mean assistant and I said oh I'm, I'm assisting the focus pull I'm assisting the second AC and, and he goes oh but you're a camera operator I don't I don't understand and and the grip turned to me and was like oh you're a camera operator he said, like, they both, it was so, those industries are so kind of, like, separate that they didn't, un, like, in drama, they couldn't understand that you could be a camera operator. And the NG operator couldn't understand why I was being an assistant. So I want to just fast forward a little bit, and probably to around 2010, I'm going to say, there or thereabouts. When you first started out properly uh, on your own as a freelancer, how did you go about finding the work? Yeah, so that was actually before I started doing the assistant on the, the drama work. Um, okay. But uh, in terms of getting the work, that was, yeah, rough, roughly several months after Channel M had gone down and I was freelancing with other companies' cameras. Um, 
you know, doing the sports broadcast stuff. But then I was also bought a DSLR and started doing my companies. own companies. I mean, a lot of people around that time had been made redundant from Channel M, so they'd all gone their separate ways. And we all kind of went, went on the, our own different paths and found our own work. And I think the work got passed from one person to the other, obviously when they were double booked, triple booked or whatever. I just couldn't do it. And so I think a lot of work actually came from, yeah, from the network that I'd had at Channel M originally. So talking about networking, how important was it that you, you obviously built and maintained those relationships with other operators, other DOPs, so you could pass work backwards and forwards? How vital was that in, in terms of getting your career going? Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest part. I think uh, probably like most industries, network is is huge. It's probably one of the most important things, especially in this industry. And um, I mean, I, at that time, I never cold called any clients never went direct to client it was all, all production companies it was it was always a referral of some kind from from networking either from channel m or uh through university so yeah i mean that network was invaluable it's probably the most important thing you've built up your network you've um you've established a, a your sort of career and your, your footings in manchester and in the uk as well and obviously doing a lot of eng work and things around europe as well and then you decide to throw it all in the bin and move to australia <laughs> yeah. um yeah so tell me tell me um obviously people want to know why why you moved there i know the the, the answer for that but um, um, why did this come about and how difficult was it to obviously start completely from scratch again yeah so i, I should probably say why i did it to avoid people thinking i should have been on crime stoppers but um <laughs> yeah it was uh, as most people move overseas um for it was uh, for for a woman for an Australian woman, um, so yeah, that's the that was the uh, primary reason for for moving. Um, it certainly wasn't for work, although it has been. I must say, the industry here and the people here are, are amazing. They're all super welcoming. Um, but yeah, it was a a huge um, setback because I, I knew absolutely no nobody here, um, and I think yeah, that's probably. Yeah. The, the the first time um, that I have ever started approaching um, production companies or freelancers and trying to introduce myself, trying to go out for coffees, trying to go for meetings, um, joining uh, the a ACS, which is the same as the BSC, and um, trying to network through those areas and 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 to be honest. There were some dire phone calls when I began because obviously Brisbane, for one, is not the biggest metropolitan area in Australia. So, you know, work is, I suppose, more limited here than it is in Sydney or Melbourne. So, again, like, we uh, <laughs> didn't, uh, we, we were restricted to begin with. Like, we could have made it easier on ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of those calls, like, luckily, and <laughs> luckily there was a few people. Um, on my CV that had actually we had in common with production companies here, funnily enough. So other expats that had moved over um, and they knew a few of the directors or DOPs, so that was a nice talk. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, yeah. Although no work, uh, I can't say any work really came from that, but it was it was nice to uh, pick the brains and see what they thought of the industry here. But uh, 
I remember one call in particular that it was a, an expat and they just said, you know, there's, and it, well, I must have been about four months in and they said, oh, it's it's not like England, there's no work here, like it's really limited, you're going to find it really hard. And, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> Confidence yeah. Confidence inspiring, yeah, yeah. And I must have sounded yeah. so down that she rang me back and she was like, oh, you know, it, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, which which was very nice of her, but um it must have taken me, yeah, uh, six months before I started uh, to build at work and um, start yeah. to do corporate uh, for a few production com- local production companies, uh, and then I and then I suppose it was a case of building up the quality of work from there. So from there, it took probably another half a year to get into documentary, and then another year after that to get into commercials. Um, so yeah, it was, it was wow. a slow process. And I mean, like my network here is still very small and that's one of the things I'm trying to improve at the moment. I mean, just because it is so important. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. And I, I remember when you first said you were going and being sort of quietly worried, I, I, you won't mind me telling you this, but <laughs> definitely not because I doubted you, but, but, um, I was just worried that you had to basically just start all over again. Now you've moved there and you've had some time to settle and obviously understand the industry. How, how different is it from the UK? Is it different? The the industry here as well is completely different to the industry in England. And, um, it took me a while to figure that out. And the, in England, I suppose the companies are a lot bigger and everyone is like, like 95% of the industry is freelancers, whereas here, um, most of the corporate or even the commercial stuff even some of the drama stuff like that's they're smaller companies um you know there may be anywhere between two to 15 people uh companies um and and you don't really get much bigger than that other than the big feature films are they in-house stuff as well um, most of the producers and producers are mainly in-house and, and then on the smaller like corporate production companies, they're, they're usually made up of a director and a cinematographer or a producer and a cinematographer, like it's a two-man band. And... Yeah. While you've been out there, um, you've worked on some good projects that I've seen so far. So stuff for Nat Geo that turned into a Netflix um Netflix series, um, you've got a ton of broadcast credits and TVC work as well. So do you want to just talk us through a couple of the, the standout projects that you've, you've worked on since you've been out there? Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, after that first year um, of kind of stepping more so away from corporate and going into documentary, it got a lot more interesting. Um, and those series were uh, 72 Dangerous Animals, which was uh, a lot of fun, which got to work with a lot of um, very skilled people um, and got to interview a lot of very interesting people too. Uh, we, I can't say I had, because I'm, I'm not specialised in the area of filming wildlife, I've worked with the people that were specialised in, in, in the filming of wildlife, so it was more interesting to speak to them as opposed to, I suppose, the, the shoot itself. But Obviously, it's a it's a huge crew and, and many contributors for for that type of show. Um, but just tell me a little bit. Talk me through obviously the the bits that you were involved in. Um, so, funnily enough, that those programs are Asia and Latin America. But a lot of the cameramen, because they they produce the show in Perth, but a lot of the crews are, are based all over the world. So we just got to travel within. Australia, which is not as interesting as it sounds after you've heard the uh, show Dangerous Animals Asia or uh, Latin America, but 
Yeah, we basically went around Australia, flew around um, to speak to all the specialists, the doctors that were specialists in, in that particular um, animal. What are the main differences that you, you feel are between the UK and Australian productions? Um, do you think the training that you've had in the UK has put more put you in a more advantageous position over there? A, a UK crew seen as as um, well skilled, well trained crews? Yeah, definitely. I think um, British crews are renowned all over the world for being um, great, hard working crews with good foundations and good training. Um, I mean, Australia has some, you know, as well, like similarly has fantastic crews and the same with New Zealand as well, who's just next door and a lot of American productions come over and Australian crews are known again for being highly skilled and highly trained and, and hardworking. Um, but I think definitely coming from England, there is respect because of the contents, the content that's made there. And, you know, I mean, like the BBC, arguably, it's, it's, it's the start of broadcast, so, um, or the founder of broadcast. So when you come from the, the motherland that's created broadcast, it counts for something. <laughs> and what do you see as the main sort of differences between UK crews and Australian crews, the sort of cultural differences? Um, I think the crews, and certainly in bigger productions uh, in England, is pretty everyone's a lot more um, serious. It, it's kind of like being in the army. Uh, <laughs> I would relate it to, although I've not been in the army, but that's what I imagine it would be like. Um, whereas here in Australia, those bigger productions, everyone seems a lot more um, less stressed. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make it more effective or not. It, it does make it a less stressful place to work and, um, in terms of team build, it could have just been the crew that I've worked with as well. Yeah, I'd, um, I've spent a little bit of time in Australia, not too much and obviously nowhere near as much as yourself, but I'd, I myself even just sort of travelling around, I, I find that there's a different attitude to work-life balance over there and I think they've probably got it the right way around. Um, do, do you think that's actually the case? I think, yeah, there's definitely more of a work-life balance, particularly in Brisbane. I mean, I can't, I, I do travel around a lot, but I can't say, you know, I haven't lived in Sydney and I haven't lived in Melbourne and those are obviously bigger metropolitan areas. So uh, I can't say if it's the same for them, but there's certainly, there's a nice work-life balance here, much more than you would find in England, I think. So yeah, on on the thread of cultural differences and networking, I understand you were involved in filming the uh, the first cattle export from Australia to China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can you just explain to our listeners uh, what that's about? Yeah, it was a it was a documentary that we were doing. It was actually the first live cattle export over to China since it was re-legalized, um, which was a point of contention at the time. So. Um, it's kind of like an investigative uh, documentary, but um, we went over to Perth and we were, we were filming the ship over there and um, we did our, our stint for a week over in Perth and then several weeks later we went over to China for uh, when the boat was arriving. And um, that was definitely interesting in terms of uh, cultural differences because when we got there, there was um, a fixer that was Chinese, uh, Singapore, Singaporean, Singaporean Chinese, um, he was helping us out and, and he was great to deal with. But um, when we arrived there, we kind of met 
the the team of people that we'd be working with, the Chinese officials. And there was a guy, a Chinese army official, Chinese policeman, quarantine inspection. And there was all of us from Australia, Singapore and New Zealand. And we were, there must have been about 20 of us sat in a big round table. And I think that's customary for um, business meetings in China. Um, But I certainly wasn't used to the culture and I didn't realize what was going to happen on the first night because we ended up all having to uh, get very drunk, as is apparently customary in China for the first time you meet each other. Um, so you, uh, we ended up uh, having many a beers and doing a shot for every time someone did a speech. And it, it was customary for every single person on that table to do a speech and kind of stand up and say why they were thankful to be there and thankful to be uh, surrounded by the people that you're surrounded by. So that was a... Uh, 20 shots of this rice wine. I'm not sure how strong it was. Um, followed by <laughs> shots of beer. and uh, So by the end of it, we ended up... Um, everyone everyone got on very well, thankfully. <laughs> there were no arguments, but we ended up uh, staggering home with army officials and... Uh, and China inspection, inspection and quarantine, which was a, which was an eye opener, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Um, we're going to take a quick break here just to remind you about a competition that we're running to win a signed copy of Doug Allen's book Freeze Frame. We'll be back shortly. Under the Lights Podcast. Hello, it's me again, back to tell you about our fantastic competition that we've got to win a personalised and signed copy of Doug Allen's book, Freeze Frame. All you have to do is answer the following question, which is, Doug Allen graduated from university in 1973 with a degree in which subject? That is, Doug Allen graduated from university in 1973 with a degree in which subject? Send your answers to hello at utlpod.com, short for Under the Lights Pod, and we'll draw a winner at random on our Facebook page at utlpod at the end of this series. Get your entries in now. Under the Lights Podcast. Welcome back to the Under the Lights Podcast, and we're here still with Matt Davis. Ed, Matt, I just wanted to jump straight back in there and where you're at now. Let's talk about that. You've obviously spoken about going down the first AC route, coming away from the DOP route. Is that to give you access to the bigger projects? And, and what, what's your thought process behind that? Um, so a lot of the production... So I've been here now, I think it's about four and a half years. And um, I'm, I'm happy with what I've managed to achieve in four and a half years. Um, but I, Oh, definitely. You should be really proud. Cheers. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I want, definitely want to work up to those bigger productions, whether uh, primarily in commercials um, and also, you know, maybe if I can move into narrative and make it work with the family, that would be ideal. But I think maybe commercials is a more realistic expectation. Yeah, and I think the thing that we should point out is that we've both got young families as well. And I think commercials tend to be shorter jobs. It tends to be one or two days in comparison to feature films and even short films, which can be sort of last for weeks, months, uh, was was that a conscious decision to pursue the the commercials because of that reason? Yeah, that's it. I mean, you can be on a, a feature or a TV series for anywhere between like six weeks to six months and or longer. And and you usually, I suppose, if you're in that circle, you can hop from one to the next to the next. And I mean, I know people who have families and, and they do that and I, and, and they make it work for them, which is great. But I think for me personally, um, 
I, I would I don't think I could do do that so I think I'll uh, yeah commercials is a conscious decision to try and have that happy medium between uh, having a family life and having work in the area I want to work so yeah and just just to reiterate what what steps are you taking to obviously get those bigger projects uh, so yeah at the moment I mean some of the commercials here are like anywhere so I suppose they you know they go into the hundreds of thousands maybe more and I suppose at the moment per day so at the moment I mean I wouldn't necessarily say you'd trust me with a, a couple of hundred grand a day <laughs> um, but uh, I mean a lot of that is also the fact that when I have um, been a cinematographer on commercials it's it's within because it's completely different size production it's a different completely different network and so I've, I've tried to step back to focus pulling and go into that higher end as a focus puller in order to um, to network in those areas and eventually work up that hierarchy. Do you find that you're getting some, you're almost able to stand back a little bit and, and observe the DOPs in those situations as well and learn a little bit more from them as well that way, from working that closely with them? Yeah, definitely. And that's really nice. It's just, um, it's, I suppose, great to have a mentor and it's really hard to find... Uh, or I, I at least have found it's really hard to find a, a mentor, especially as you get older as well. So it's kind of nice to step back to AC in, in order to see other people work, the way that they do things. The, and it's it's not just necessarily from a technical point of view. It's, you know, being a cinematographer or a DOP is how to, how to be a manager, how to um, direct yeah, crew. Yeah. And, and that's a huge part of the job. And it's, it's, on the bigger productions it's good to see it's good to learn from them how to manage people and, and what which ways of managing is more effective than another or were the crews are happier because the DOP is kind of you know uh, creating that culture that it, as we said before it kind of streams down from there so you've hit the nail on the head there and that's something that's massively overlooked I think especially uh, if, if you come from a self-shooting sort of one-man band um, background as well I think the, the the actual main role of a DOP is, is to do that is to manage um, and that's something that obviously being able have been fortunate enough to be on bigger sets and actually observe DOPs I think that's a, a huge part of something that you need to develop and you need to work on and, and sort of personally develop as well is that ability to manage like big teams of people. Yeah. Cause I think on the bigger, um, commercials that I've done, like, I, I think the biggest commercial I've done had about 40 crew on it, which was for me, that was huge. Um, and I just, I didn't know, you know, like I, I was trying to help everyone. I was trying to talk to everyone and, you know, I guess I didn't, um, if, if I would have spent more time, uh, working with bigger crews then I would have known that you know you only need to direct your focus at a few people that will then direct their focus at, at their teams I just want to take two minutes just to talk about kit as well I've always been one to invest in the best kit that you can afford and then go out there and sort of market yourself with the kit because I think a lot of producers in the UK and I don't know if this is the case in, in Australia um, in the UK if you're outside of London there's almost an expectation that you come with the kit um, they don't want to be messing about hiring in and things unless you live in the capital where a lot of my friends who are DOPs and uh, that they basically they'll just rent in whatever kit they need I, I feel like and I, I use this analogy 
it before. I feel like the the kid that's turning up with the brand new football um, on the on the school field when you turn up with a decent camera to a shoot, and you, you're not necessarily the best sort of player there, but you sort of almost cheated by sort of buying your way onto the production by having the better camera. Do you think? Do you think that sort of helps? Um, in terms of whether you get the better jobs, I think it depends on what kind of standard you're at. I mean, those high end commercials like you're saying like they're, they're going to hire a different set of lenses and every for every commercial depending on the look that they want or whatever narrative whatever yeah, it is absolutely um yeah. so it's kind of would be to your detriment to own a pair of lenses if that's the area or, or same with the camera um you know it'd be to, you, to your detriment to own those things because you just wouldn't get use out of them enough um but certainly yeah i mean owning a camera does always help i think do you, do you think it's different um depending on which area of the industry you work in for example uh eng sports and things like that you, you, there is that expectation carried that that you turn up with your own kit um I, I feel that that's the case anyway do you do you think that it's different across across the different sort of disciplines in the industry yeah that's probably a good way to differentiate it is it's definitely with i mean i don't really know many of the news guys anymore but the guys that always did really well were the guys that owned their own kit and it was the same with sports as well um and then you know with corporate you kind of have to have your own kit and with documentary it's the same as eng and sports i suppose is you know again you've got to have your own kit for the most part unless it's the very highest end of documentary and then with lower end commercials i mean if you if you own a, an, an alex mini or you own a a red camera of whatever kind then um it will probably be to your advantage and that you can probably work out deals with production um but at the end of the day you've still got to do a great job and that's probably the most important thing could we just take two seconds to just talk about your kit you've you've shot did you start on fs7 when you went over to australia you've moved on to f5 and now you're on red ranger yeah so is that right I forgot yeah that right. that's right yeah yeah um but that uh, night's funny because i did go from fs7 to f5 and the reason was which f5 is obviously a lot older camera than the fs7 um but the reason was was because the work i was in at the time um when I first got here after that first year it was documentary and all of the producers seemed to be asking for F5 because that's what they were used to and I would say to them oh but the FS7 you know the image quality is pretty much the same in fact you know the blacks are probably less noisy um, and and they just you know I'd end up hiring an F5 every time just because they knew the F5 and they weren't willing to give the FS7 a go and then two years later they're not asking for F5 anymore. Now they're asking for FS7s, and I got rid of it for an F5. <laughs> but that's okay. It's, it's a strange one. It's what's sort of happening in, in the industry with the Blackmagic gear, which is absolutely amazing camera, amazing image for, for, for the cost of what it is. Um, but there's this real reluctance to sort of take it up on projects, and we still keep getting um, getting requested FS7s on on probably ninety percent of the things that that we're doing. I don't think I would have ever bought an F5 if it wasn't for the fact that producers were asking for it. I think you know the image quality that comes out of the Black Magic, the Ursas, uh, it, the color science is kind of superior to the Sony's, but you know broadcast companies they know Sony. That's what they've used for decades, so that's what. They know it's reliable, and that's why they keep using it. 
Um, just finally on on your kit, you've you've just invested in a Red Ranger Gemini as well. Um, so tell me tell me what the decision was behind that, and and more importantly, how you see that opening doors for you as well. Uh, so I bought it about three quarters through last year, and um, it was it was for a job that we've been doing for the last couple of years, which was um, Center, which is Chris Hemsworth Sports app. Um, and we'd been hiring Alexa Minis uh, to do the promo stuff for a long time, and and then we'd be switching between um, Red and that was between the Epic and the Gemini. And because the main DOP actually owned a Ge- Gemini, we uh, and and of course he liked the look, he liked the different look to it. But that was uh, one of the primary reasons we went with Gemini. Um, and then at the end of last year, we decided we would have two cameras, two Geminis on a on a number of the sh- upcoming shoots, which was basically like six weeks straight of work. So in Australia, the cameras, they rent for quite a lot because the population is lower and I suppose the demand is lower, but the prices of the cameras still stay the same. So they tend to rent out for more. So I bought the, the camera for that six weeks of work, knowing that it would kind of reimburse probably one third of the purchase cost um and i yeah. say i would say in general looking at the gemini you've probably got um one year to two years to well i'd say i'd say one year to make your money back on it and maybe a second year to make profit on it before it kind of goes out of date and i mean it's, it's not that you need a new camera because it's out of date it's just what's in demand Exactly, exactly. Uh, we've unfortunately come to the end of the podcast, Matt, but we've just got time to do our obligatory desert island kit list. So I'll set the scene. You've crash landed on a desert island. You've got three pieces of kit with you that you can take to document your time on the island. One light, one camera and one lens. What would you take with you and why? I'd be interested to know if everyone has pretty much the same answers. <laughs> um, is it so uh, Alexa Mini because um, it's probably the most versatile camera you can get at the moment um, in terms of lens choices I think the LF is probably yeah um, it is not quite there yet um, for lens probably the Anjanu EZ the 30 to 90 if I had to choose one of the lens oh yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. a bit of a workhorse and it's yeah very adaptable it's interesting um, and in terms of a light well, if you're on a desert island, can I can I just choose fabrics instead? <laughs> yeah, we'll let you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like working in Australia, like we, that was probably one of the biggest learning curves was learning how to deal with the sun. So I'd choose a a, a super bounce with on one side and an egg on the other, and control the sun and use the sun as my main source. That's perfect. I, I think, to be honest, I think you're the only person that's gone for a. A motion camera as well. I think everybody else has gone for still, so I like that. I like that you've gone for the uh, the Alexa. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 There we go. And that's the end of episode four of the Under the Lights podcast. I want to say a huge thank you to Matt Davis for joining us for this week's episode. It's been a massive pleasure to talk to you again. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, you can support the pod by dropping us a like, comment, subscribe, or share. If you have any comments or audience questions that you'd like to submit for future episodes, please get in touch by emailing hello at utlpod.com. 
I want to thank you once again sincerely for listening. The audience numbers have been absolutely fantastic, so thank you so much for supporting us. The next episode is out next Monday. I've been Cy Gamble, and I'll see you soon. Under the Lights Podcast.